Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we mull over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we take a look at the latest news stories, including the EU is investigating diesel collusion among Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Porsche and VW, so a report says. We have a lovely chat about Rolls-Royce's image. Are they trying to cover more than just the elite? And we look at the Darwin experience of driverless buses with drivers still on board. If they're not driving, what useful things could they do? We have a couple of reflections on the planning of our cities from a recent forum. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a jolly look at stories including a working six-speed gearbox made from Lego. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Britain is to ban all new petrol and diesel cars and vans from 2040, amid fears that rising levels of nitrogen oxide pose a major risk to public health. The commitment, which follows a similar pledge in France, is part of the British government's much-anticipated clean air plan, which has been at the heart of a protracted High Court legal battle. The government warned that the move, which will also take in hybrid vehicles, was needed because of the unnecessary and avoidable impact that poor air quality was having on people's health. Ministers believe it poses the largest environmental risk to public health in the UK, costing close to £3 billion or $5 billion in lost productivity annually. Autonomous vehicles are bringing together some of the most progressive technologies and they continue to embrace companies previously not associated with vehicle manufacturing or travel. One of the reasons for this is that it is no longer just about travel. It is about seeing travel as one aspect of your life and therefore provide services that integrate your activities. China's biggest search engine, Beidou, and Microsoft are expanding their self-driving vehicle partnership to cover data storage, security, and artificial intelligence services for the company's open-source autonomous vehicle platform, Apollo. BMW is linking your car back to a central data source, and Mercedes will soon help you get solar panelling to charge your electric vehicle and whatever else it can be used for. In 2015, news broke of Volkswagen cheating the fuel consumption and air pollution rating tests. Since then, there have been suspicions of other companies doing similar things, possibly including Fiat Chrysler. Now there is a report that the European Union is investing all three German car makers, not just for working on their own plans, but colluding to manipulate software and set standards for diesel emissions. This was first reported in Der Spiegel in Germany, and then covered by the British outlet Autocar. In response, the BMW Group has reacted strongly and rejected all claims. The VW Group has already said its cost for settlements in North America alone for the Volkswagen diesel emission scandal, both civil and criminal, is more than $25 billion. When campaigning for the presidential election, Donald Trump vowed to penalise companies that manufactured goods for the American market outside the US. But now heavy lobbying, including the car companies, 
makes it highly unlikely that border taxes will be implemented. A spokesperson for the Retail Industry Leaders Association, which was instrumental in stopping the tax proposal in its tracks, said that he'd never seen anything galvanise the corporate community like this issue. And Bloomberg reports that opponents of border adjustability won't stop criticising the provision until all possibility of its inclusion in tax reform is gone, according to lawmakers who dislike the idea. On other transport-related news, Trump recently went to the Boeing factory and praised it as a classic case of producing American-made goods. However, most of the components come from overseas, including parts that were manufactured in Melbourne. A study by the Monash University Accident Research Centre has found aggressive driving is prevalent on Australian roads. The report found that 18% of drivers in the survey admitted to deliberately chasing another driver to intimidate them. Particular groups are even more likely to be involved in aggressive behaviour, with 35% of men aged 22 to 39 having pursued another driver at least once. More than half of female drivers aged 26 to 39 have tailgated, compared to 60% of men in the same age group. In Victoria, 86% of drivers say they expressed anger on the road. Low-level anger might be low-level honking and verbal abuse through to tailgating and chasing another vehicle. The data was collected in 2014, but it would be hard to see the situation getting any better. In recent times, many start-up companies have one good idea that make the founders very rich indeed. But it is really that easy. After 10 years, Lucid Motors, a startup aimed at producing a Tesla-like killer electric car, is looking for a buyer. Ford closely looked at making a bid, but at this stage they have withdrawn. Lucid's approach was based on the assumption that the vehicle market will change significantly in the short to medium term with a shift towards car sharing. Their first design, the Lucid Air, is not due to go on sale until 2019. Another startup trying to make an electric car, Faraday Future, has indefinitely postponed development of its $1 billion manufacturing facility outside of Las Vegas. And that has been the news. You're listening to Overdrive. The CBDs in our major capital cities account for little more than 10% of the metropolitan jobs. Local centres are a major focus for work and other activities for their part in the whole metropolitan region. This has led to expressions that Sydney, for example, is and should be encouraged to be a city of cities. So regional centres should not be seen in a patronising way. It seems that suburban areas are thought of as the poorer cousins of large metropolitan regions, and we think that people in these regions only ever aspire to living and working in the richer inner suburbs. This is not the case for many people who are proud and happy to focus on their own area. Sadly, many of the largest transport projects are designed and promoted as mainly improving access to the CBD. But regional centres need a strong regional focus. And this is not just about shopping and office jobs. For example, just west of the Parramatta CBD is the highly advanced Westmead Medical Precinct, which is now being included in major transport improvements, as is the growing Western Sydney University. 
It is part of the vibrant leading development activities that help reduce the pressure, especially for transport, on just one CBD. You're listening to Overdrive. On June the 3rd, 1965, a brand new Rolls-Royce was delivered in England. It was a Phantom 5 model fitted with a limousine body and finished in a Valentine's black. The car was delivered to John Lennon, the Beatle. Some years later, I think it was 1967, Ringo Starr said, why don't you paint it in psychedelic colours? They did that and a tradition, well, a tradition, a point in history had been reached. Was it significant and where does it leave Rolls-Royce's image then and what are they doing now? Well, who better to talk about that than our good friend Paul Morell, ex of the marketing game, been around for a while in the motoring, uh, road testing and reflecting and commenting game. Paul, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. That was quite a quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I really should have prepared something, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I thought the reason you were having me comment on John Lennon's Rolls Royce is that I was the only person you knew who was old enough to be there at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. I, I, I wondered what your children's response to it was. Now, <laughs> the, the point, you remember it at the time. Did you think it was an act of rebellion? Oh, it was, it was. And it had, it had many Colonel Blimps in London and spluttering into their gin and tonics. They were absolutely <laughs> mortified that someone would would mistreat and disrespect a Rolls-Royce like that. You see, Prince Charles at the time had been given, or maybe a bit earlier, been given a little toy Aston Martin in the style of James Bond, I think, with all the bullets and, and shields and things and rotating number plates. So that was the more image of the youthful, but of course the Queen would have still gone round in stately cars. So it was really, as you say, a, a confrontation to the Conservative. Oh, it was. It really did hit the establishment quite hard. I mean, probably they didn't get upset about that as much as they did about the Beatles being given MBEs, but it, was, it was, must have been a close-run thing. Well, in fact, they went to get their MBEs in this car, but before it was painted in its colours. The interesting thing, if yeah. you look at the colours of it now, I find it less psychedelic and more paisley and sort of almost an Indian influence. It was hardly pictures of spirals and psychedelic from that point of view. To some degree, it, it's relatively conservative. It is. We look back on those things and they're quite different. I mean, normally common knowledge, common, common good sense would tell you that painting a car like that would probably destroy its resale value. But uh, in, in the case of John Lennon's car, I think it um, enhanced it fairly hugely. With the baby boomers now getting old and conservative and some of them moneyed up, they might well be able to buy this as memorabilia of their times. They'll need very deep pockets, I think. <laughs> now, Rolls-Royce's image, I mean, where do they go? Because they had a great uh, celebration of the Phantom 8, I think, that came out, and they actually took this car along to it. So times change, we evoke our memories in our own particular ways well as you said very 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 um, intelligently as the baby boomers get older and they get more discretionary money to spend they look back with a great deal of fondness on those things we tend to forget the bad parts of the past and remember the good parts so yes rolls royce are for once in their lives moving with the times no they're not famous for their ability to sort of 
be right up to the moment. Uh, usually they're, they're, they tend to wait until things are proven before they take them on board. For example, they took General Motors' automatic gearbox. Eventually they put that in the car when they decided that people wanted autos. So they have been a little, a little conservative, shall we say. Well, of course, it, what, what Henry Royce and um, I'm trying to remember who was Rolls. Was it? The Honourable Charles Rolls. Charles, that was the one. Charles was the engineer. Royce was the marketer. Charles actually didn't invent a great deal of things. He just made them very, very well. Yeah, well, in fact, it was, it's very similar with, um, with Henry Ford. Henry Ford, if you look at it carefully, didn't really invent a great deal, but he found clever new ways to use someone else's ideas to successfully produce cars more economically. Henry Ford, for example, didn't, didn't invent, despite what people think, didn't invent the production line. That had already been, been developed overseas in, in Europe and Scandinavia, as I recall, mm. uh, long, before Henry, long before Henry Ford took it on board. So, yes, Rolls-Royce took a similar path. In fact, they're doing that now, that they're not going to go to hybrids. They'll go to full electric, but they're not going to rush because they're owned by BMW. They will wait until that's developed and it can produce the sort of luxury features that they're used to, which is, A, a big, lumpy well, lumpy car, heavy, let's say that. I figured I really appreciate that comment, David. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my road test. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's done. Can I just say, I just think the modern Rolls Royce is probably be some of the ugliest cars on the road. Yeah, I. You can disagree. I do. I, I mean, I don't find them ugly. I find them. I find them sort of not very, not very stylish. Uh, I think they could have been a lot, a lot more cleverly designed. Mm. But um, you know, they're imposing, which I guess is you know the primary aim of the the designer of a Rolls Royce is to you know be as imposing as possible. And despite the fact that they've downsized some of their cars. You know, driving a Rolls-Royce still makes that statement, so they will continue to follow that path. Paul, it's always lovely to talk to you, and I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And that's Paul Morell, a great friend of the program and motoring journalist, who are we talking about images, which has as much to do with cars as does technology. And you can hear the full interview with Paul by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Greater housing density is constantly advocated as a surefire way to be able to provide better public transport and more financially viable services within active transport access. At a recent forum organised by 10,000 Friends of Greater Sydney, some challenged the overall health benefit to the community by packing people in more tightly. Increasing density is a valid transport objective, but sometimes it has been seen in a one-dimensional sense. Recently, for example, calls have been made to make sure that if high density is built close to a high-volume road, then strong provision should be made to reduce the intrusion of air and noise pollution. I am also concerned that density is such an all-or-nothing debate that lower-density suburban areas are dismissed as poor planning that is beyond hope. Autonomous public transport vehicles could well be a way to provide good, frequent public transport in lower-density areas. We will get better, more compact living, but let's not become so one-eyed that we forget that the ultimate goal is the quality of life. We must implement higher density in a manner that won't create a backlash in years to come. You're listening to Overdrive. 
And I am joined on the line with our good friend Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Now, in January, the bus company that was transporting people in Darwin from the waterfront to the Stokes Hill Wharf, they implemented an autonomous vehicle. It's carried 3,500 passengers have ridden it in the six months. But uh, a lot of people are deeply concerned because, well, not so much concerned, but thinking, why does there still have to be a person from the company on the bus? Not quite a driver in one sense, but nonetheless uh, another person along there. Brian, I might have initially thought that that might have given some people some sense of security. Yeah, well, I think the, the trial is the key sort of word here in that, um, you know, they're, they're trying out driverless buses or autonomous buses uh, and I think they, they they need to collect data and a lot of it I guess can be collected automatically and digitally but I think certainly in the trial process you would want to have a person there observing how people use it and able to intervene if something goes wrong but, but I think too that people are in the transition will probably be reassured by having a driver there who's able to take control should something untoward happen. Is the guy actually sitting behind the steering wheel or is he sort of up the back chatting up the young lady? <laughs> That's a good question. Interestingly, uh, one of these buses were trialled in Perth, the same way driverless. I don't think they they had um, a driver on board, but they, they were certainly providing staff who, who showed people around the service. It carried... Um, yeah, a few thousand people. Uh, so I, I think, interestingly, um, you know, these driverless uh, trials will continue. And for mine, I'm quite happy that there may well be a driver to help people get used to it. I remember the early days of the monorail being introduced in Sydney that uh, customers really did want to have a human being in the vehicle uh, initially. And, they, you know, that's on a track that, that really nothing much can go wrong. But but uh, the interesting thing, India has, has announced just very recently that uh, – their plan is to um, ban driverless cars in order to protect jobs. Ah. So uh, the question of, you know, the job for the drivers, they're saying, you know, if you've got unemployment in the country, uh, they're a bit reluctant to introduce a technology that, um, that, I guess, takes away jobs, human jobs. You know, that's exactly the point I want to make. I was talking to a young guy who was the political advisor to a Liberal Party state minister. Yeah, lovely bloke. I enjoyed the conversation. We didn't totally agree on a full range of issues, but I said that I'm looking forward for to autonomous buses because they will operate much smoother than buses by a yes. driver. I, I was on a bus the other day, and and you know it came up to the bus stop, and there were about five solid prods at the brake, and then off. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I looked up and I was getting out of my seat, but, you know, nearly having to catch the bloke who was standing there. We looked at each other and I said, it will be a godsend when we get autonomous buses. Now, the young political advisor said, oh, yeah, but think of all the jobs that are lost. The point is, perhaps we could use them for other things. You said that helping people to get used to it, to be able to perhaps load their bike onto the rack on the front or help older people out, or from a security point of view, I'm not sure whether that means they have to be bouncer size, but <laughs> the notion that we don't have to have the person driving, but in the future, if we are losing mechanical-type jobs to robots, perhaps we might well be able to provide more jobs for service-type things in sickness, it's you know there will be a robot to do the operation, but maybe having people with you while you're in the hospital and that is a real service industry. 
Well, well, two interesting comments on this, David. The idea of autonomous buses is a is a really interesting one, and I, and I I'm pleased to see that there's a lot of trials, public trials, where autonomous buses are taking sort of centre stage. But most of the cost of operating a bus is the cost of the driver, hmm. the employment of the driver. So removing the driver from the equ- equation potentially means you can operate bus services much more cheaply, reinvest some of that, that cost into more services or cheaper services. So there's a, a benefit there for a lot of people potentially at the cost of a job. So the other side of the equation, David, is uh, we've, we've just finished um, preparing some guidelines for the federal government on whole of journey planning. And this is uh, planning to make sure that uh, services and infrastructure are accessible for people with mobility impairments um, and, and disabilities that affect their ability to travel by public transport. And, and in talking with lots of people who have these impairments, this, uh, this big theme came out that they rely on other people to help them. So they rely on the staff for face-to-face you know, contact with staff and with other people to help them navigate the system and understand particularly when things change from business as usual. So having a driver, human being on the vehicle or in an interchange is of great benefit to, to people. You're listening to Overdrive. Brian, you have a story for us. I, I wish Errol was here to do this story, David, because mm. it's a story about Lego. And um, and people use Lego for lots of things. Well, a clever young, uh, young person has created uh, from a Lego Technics kit a working six-speed manual gearbox. Um, this is pretty astounding. The Swedish uh, 17-year-old has um, has made this thing entirely out of Lego. You connect an electric motor to the input shaft and you can actually shift the gears uh, and they're fully synchronised uh, to demonstrate how the ratios work. And, uh, and in fact, um, I think on our website we could probably put a link uh, to a video and to instructions and parts if you want to make your own six-speed gearbox. This is pretty awesome, David. According to the person who tried it out, it was uh, potentially smoother than you'd find in in an older classic car. If Errol was here to do that, of course, he'd hurt himself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how he'd do it on Lego, but I love it that he's not just following instructions. I love it that he's actually used the standard pieces. You can now get Lego sets to build a Porsche or what have you. It's almost A goes on to B goes on to C, and a bit complicated, and it makes you think. But it's a kit, isn't it, rather than exploring what you could make with it. I I want to see him make an automatic. Yeah, or a CVT. He's certainly um, behind the times because he's he's worked... (laughs) On a manual gearbox, and, and technology's passed him by. I think you're right. An auto gearbox or a CVT, continu- what is it, a continuously, continuously variable, variable trans- transmission, transmission yeah. would be much of a challenge. Get to it, unnamed 17-year-old Swedish lad. Does it have a working clutch? That's what I want to know too, which reminds me of a great story. Many years ago, we were working on an old bomb car I had. We pulled the gearbox out and sat at an old stump in the backyard. We were trying to change gear, and it wouldn't change at, at all and my mother came up and said perhaps you need to put the clutch in <laughs> <laughs> of course the, one of the biggest difficulties with a lego car if you were to create you know a full lego vehicle with a gearbox and everything if you had a crash i mean a lot of the the uh, bystanders and um emergency services personnel you know would get injured feet you know stepping on on the tiny parts that are <laughs> scattered around the road 
That's <laughs> the great problem of working with Lego. That's right. You take it to the mechanic, and the biggest problem is, you know, the part you need is under a, a couch somewhere. Indeed. Brian, can I say that it's about time we moved on in when we're naming transport devices? Do you remember, of course, we had uh, Boaty McBoatface? Ah, uh, yes. The, the This is the what happens when you ask the public to name something. And, yes. and it's ever since Boaty McBoatface pretty much guaranteed to get a something something face aren't you yes indeed and in fact we've seen that in a train in sweden the newspaper the metro there uh, the mtr express is what they wanted to name the a train and 49 percent came up with trainee mctrain face I, I think this is passed it's passed on from there it's an old joke it's like your dad telling you a joke your joke about a year later, when he knows it's your joke, he just wants to be part of the crowd. It, it doesn't work, does it? It still makes me laugh, though, David, I have to say. I might be behind the times, but <laughs> it still, still does make me laugh. Training McTrain face. The greatest part of this story is that the, the, the Swedish um, railway company decided to, to go with it. The, yes. they've, they've, it's, it's one of three trains, isn't it? The other two have... One's uh, called a still. Four, four trains. So there's, yeah, one called a still. Which is this five-year-old princess of Sweden. And Glenn. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is almost as funny as Trady McTradeface. Glenn. The article says it's a popular name in Gothenburg. <laughs> Glenn. Glenn from Gothenburg. <laughs> It's I, like a school kid you went with, went to school with in the seventies. I once nearly called a mate of mine, uh, caused a mate of mine to have a crash on the road. I wasn't in the car; I was doing an interview, over, and and it was being played on his radio. And we were talking about the name Mercedes, which of course was the name of the daughter of the man who was the first dealer for the Benz car. And in, and one of the conditions was he wanted to name the car after his daughter, Mercedes. And all I said was, thank heavens she wasn't called Kylie. <laughs> yeah. Shazza. <laughs> all right, Brian. Good to talk to you. We'll catch you, you up too. next week. Thanks, mate. See you, David. That's Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.